Welcome to the Sui Generous Show, your unique perspective on everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. With Erica Merrill, I'm attorney Brian Jones, criminal defense and civil rights warrior. Today in segment one, we'll be discussing the murder of Andre Hill by Columbus police officer Adam Coy. The sham prosecution of a prosecutor accused of sexual assault and coercion in Louisiana and the failure of the Nashville Police Department to act on information it had received about the Nashville bomber. During segment two, as promised, we'll be diving even deeper into stealing records by exploring who is an eligible offender under revised code 295331, stealing records of conviction definitions and discussing when an individual becomes eligible to have their record sealed. To make sure you don't miss an episode, subscribe on Apple iTunes, YouTube, and Spotify, and follow us on all of our social media channels. Look to the law office of BrianJones.com for everything you need to know about your civil rights and the criminal injustice system. Erica, did you see in the news this week that Columbus is now dealing with the second murder of a black man by Columbus Police Department when Officer Adam Coy shot and killed Andre Hill on December 22nd. I mean, I'm just in shock. I I don't know how this is constantly happening, but um, you know, give us an overview if you can on, you know, what happened in this case. As as I read, they were just there for kind of a peaceable complaint. Nothing crazy was going on, is that right? It is. So Adam Coy and his partner had responded to a non-emergency call about a running vehicle. Now, neither officer had their body cams on when they arrived on the scene. Mr. Hill was an invited guest of the owners of the property, and it's not, uh, it's not known at this time whether it was his car that was running or somebody else's entirely. Nevertheless, Adam Coy shot and killed Andre Hill within seconds of arriving on the scene. Now, what's really disturbing about this case, notwithstanding the fact that we have yet another dead black body, is that neither Adam Coy nor his partner were operating their body cams. And he did not even make an attempt to turn on his body cam until after Adam Coy had shot and killed Andre Hill. Now, fortunately, the body cam did capture the shooting because the cameras themselves are always running um, without sound, but they erase the footage every 60 seconds unless the camera is activated. So once the camera is turned on, there's a 60 second look back period. So it appears that Officer Officer Coy did turn on his camera, but after he had shot and killed Mr. Hill. Now officers on the scene did not render any emergency aid to Mr. Hill. And in fact, they cuffed him and left him bleeding to death on the pavement uh, in front of all of the witnesses. Uh, And they, they continued to threaten and harass his family as they sought to render aid or, or get him medical attention as his lifeblood spilled out. I mean, I feel somewhat speechless that may be some of the worst things you've ever said. I mean, the guy had a a cell phone, you said, and then I, I'm just I'm just shocked that 
that that would happen and you know why aren't the cameras turned on all the time i mean thank god they have the 60 second look back but they could have caught so much more and with sound um i i'm just i'm shocked that they didn't administer any help or allow the family to help i mean he was obviously not a danger if you look at the situation so i, I mean this being as terrible as it was on so many on so many counts will the officer be criminally charged for this act yeah so a lot to go over there erica and a lot of really good points that i think you're making first there aren't really very good protocols in place when it comes to the operation and more importantly the activation of police worn body cameras um, it's something that our office has advocated for uh, for courts to create essentially an exclusionary rule as it applies to uh, these body cameras. When they first came out, what we, were able, what we frequently saw in our cases was that officers would start and stop their body cameras and, and more specifically the audio recording of their body cameras as it seemed fit and beneficial to them, um, almost making an edited version of the statements uh, as the events were were occurring in in live uh, in live play, and what we were able to do in, in one particular case was to get an instruction out of the judge um, when that case went to jury, and the judge instructed the jury that the officers had no legitimate purpose to manipulate the the audio on their body cam, and because of the prosecution's burden of production, uh, they could presume that the officers had a nefarious purpose for manipulating the recordings of the body cams. So I think this is an area of law that is ripe for uh, judicial interference. Uh, I would really like to see judges take an active role in this. I think the legislature will really be looking at, at fiscal interests and not the people's best interests when it comes to the operation of body camps. So if, if these issues are dealt with statutorily, I think what we'll see is a lot more protections for police to manipulate their body cameras. And I'd really like to see the judiciary step in and, and issue some rules and, and consequences for officers that manipulate body-worn cameras uh, and the audio that goes with them. As for um, Officer Coy getting charged, Adam Coy being charged, um, that is still up in the air at this point. So the Columbus Police Department did call the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation to the scene as soon, you know, as, soon as was appropriate um, after this shooting. Uh, they were on the scene and they have conducted and accepted their in this investigation, unlike the situation with the Franklin County Sheriff's Office and their murder of Casey Goodson. Uh, just like Casey Goodson's murder investigation, the Federal Bureau of Investigation is also involved in this investigation in both a criminal and a civil rights, federal civil rights investigation manner. Now, the preliminary autopsy report has found that Mr. Hill's death was the result of multiple gunshot wounds and was in the manner of a homicide. There's no detail right now as to the trajectory of those bullet wounds. Uh, the chief of Columbus police has recommended Officer Coy be terminated and he was in fact terminated after an administrative hearing. 
Um, he is appealing that and will be using the Columbus Police Department union to try and overturn that termination. But his termination was for unreasonable use of force, failure to activate his body camera, and failure to administer first aid. So really the big three issues that I, I think everybody was most offended by in this situation were the reasons that he was terminated. And I, I, would, I would suspect that there may be charges coming down the pipe. Um, the investigation by all these jurisdictions will continue as the family and friends of Mr. Hill press for criminal charges. I mean, so he himself didn't get arrested. Uh, Officer Coy has not been arrested at this time, no. I, I guess I just don't understand how this seems to keep happening and in front of eyewitnesses and recordings and even their own body cams, we are seeing this happen over and over again. It just, it seems like there should be some kind of protocol when it's obviously wrong and they get fired that they immediately also get put in jail. It, it does seem like there's there's an opportunity to demonstrate even handedness and, and true justice in this situation. Now, I, I would say this, Erica, from from the perspective of somebody who represents the criminally accused, um, arrest, booking and and, you know, ultimately release, I believe, is the appropriate set of circumstances for anybody that, that is in this position, you know, any officer that there is the suspicion, the reasonable suspicion of them uh, having committed this crime and probable cause to believe that they have committed this crime. And, and I think there is probable cause in this situation. We have uh, a shooting of an unarmed man. Um, you know, there's, there's no aggression. We've got a secondary witness that is also a police officer that says there was no aggression. Uh, I, I think there's enough for probable cause here to make that arrest decision, have him booked, and then make him post bond. Now, the two primary considerations for bond are one, is this individual a danger to the public? And two, are they a flight risk? Are they going to show up to future court dates? Now, I, I don't think Officer Coy needs a high bond. I don't think he needs, you know, a multi-million dollar bond. He needs stripped of his weapons. You know, all of his weapons, like any other citizen, need to be confiscated by law enforcement, stored with law enforcement. And, and he needs to, you know, have a, have a bond, have a financial stake in making sure that he continues to appear for future court dates. Now, the, the, the catch with that, of course, from the investigator's perspective is that they wouldn't be able to go back to Officer Coy and, and ask him more questions, because now his Fifth and his Sixth Amendment rights uh, to remain silent and to the representation of counsel have attached to this particular incident. So it makes their investigation a little more difficult, but let's talk practically, Erica. Officer Coy isn't making any more statements. He's got an attorney. His attorney is making all of his public statements for him. So I don't think law enforcement loses anything. And I think they gain a lot of credibility by treating one of their own as a normal citizen of the community. Well, I mean, and there's just the question of being a human being, never mind the fact that he should be on a higher echelon being a police officer, but once they found out that it wasn't a gun and that it was actually a cell phone, 
like, why are they cuffing him and not administering that for, they should always administer first aid if somebody gets hurt, right? I mean, I, I just don't, he just, he just acted so badly after, even if it was a mistake, he didn't redeem himself at all. He made it worse. That's, that's true, Erica. And we learned this new perspective uh, from Officer Coy's partner during the administrative hearing. Officer Amy Detweiler uh, testified during the administrative hearing that Mr. Hill responded to the officers. He was walking out of the garage as he had been asked to do. Um, she described that she saw him as no threat um, as he turned and, and he was walking out of the garage. Uh, but Coy screamed that, uh, that Mr. Hill had a gun and began shooting. And this was all within less than 10 seconds of uh, Mr. Hill exiting the garage or, or moving out of the garage or they, they approaching him at the garage. Um, Coy and Detweiler uh, then chose to cuff Mr. Hill. And, and, and I agree with you. This is the moment where you know, you, you, maybe you made a mistake, uh, but now you're not even treating him like a human being. You know, he doesn't have a gun. You've searched him and you can very quickly uh, secure him. And, and if, if you're talking about officer safety, which is always the, um, which is always the counter that, you know, the thin blue line always says, well, we've got to worry about officer safety. Well, if you're talking about officer safety, right? And fine, go up and cuff him, cuff him, search him. And he doesn't have a gun. So you've established that fact in a matter of seconds. And he's still a man that's been shot multiple times and is bleeding out. So you can figure all of this out in a matter of a few seconds. It doesn't require you to leave a man bleeding out for minutes and minutes on end um, until the medics arrive and then you know providing him treatment. Because is it that you just have no love and respect for your fellow first responders, the, the, the medics who responded? Is it okay for them to be assaulted uh, by this individual? If, if it's your true belief that he's a danger and you've got to leave him cuffed, uh, why do you uncuff him for the medics to treat him? You know, so obviously it's not a dangerous issue because police officers do have love for their medic colleagues. They do have love for their other first responders. So this was really just a, an opportunity to allow a black man to die, uh, die, on, die on the ground without rendering him any aid. You didn't see him as another human being. And that's what's really disgusting, both for Officer Coy and Officer Detweiler. She should have done the right thing and said, no, this is not acceptable. You cannot let him bleed out here. Now, at this time, no other charges or investigations have been announced by Columbus Police, BCI, or the FBI. Uh, but I think Officer Detweiler uh, could be a target of additional charges and investigations. Uh, and certainly the family of Mr. Hill is pushing for that. We will be watching this case very closely to see how it continues to develop. I mean, I think that's great. I. I'll, I'll look forward to some of those updates for sure. We, we appreciate all the, uh, the care and time it takes you to, to follow up and, and uh, find these stories for us. Well, you're very welcome. And moving a little bit away from Ohio and getting to some national news, we're 
Erica, did you see the case out of Louisiana with the disgusting sham of a prosecution of a powerful uh, prosecutor in Louisiana uh, and his sexual assault of over 22 women? Uh, yes, I did. And, and I'll have to say, when I was first reading about this, I mean, just that sentence that you said just gives me the heebie-jeebies. It's, it's a disgusting display of, of, of a lack of humanity, again, um, by somebody in power. And, you know, I'd let us know a little bit more about what the prosecutor was accused of exactly. I know it probably varies a little bit because there were so many, uh, but get the crux of it, I guess. Yeah, so generally speaking, the FBI identified 22 women who alleged that prosecutor Harry Morrill molested them, made sexually suggestive comments to them, and pressured them and coerced them into performing sex acts while he was the district attorney of St. Charles Parish in Louisiana. Now, multiple witnesses were willing to testify to this, and the FBI had run a sting operation revealing him groping and molesting a, yet another victim. Prosecutors never charged Morrill with any sex offense. I mean, who was he molesting? And were there, were there any crimes that he was charged with? So he was molesting the criminally accused, the people that his office was prosecuting. Um, he was ultimately prosecuted. Uh, and as part of a plea deal, Morrill admitted that he had solicited sex from these defendants uh, and from family members of defendants. Uh, he was he admitted to using the office of the district attorney uh, to provide benefits to those individuals, inappropriate benefits, and uh, he admitted to falsifying a variety of documents, including community service reports. Now, in exchange for his guilty plea, the prosecutors declined to file sexual assault charges. Uh, he pled guilty to one count of obstruction of justice and was sentenced to three years in prison, a $20,000 fine and one year of supervised release. He will never have to register as a sex offender uh, and he did not plead guilty to a sex offense. Uh, when it all comes down to the, the reality of what he will serve. He will spend less than two years of his life in prison. Uh, and then a portion of that time will be spent in a halfway house. I mean, if when you, when you told me like who he was accused of molesting and groping and, and whatever else was happening, it just seems like another situation where someone in power is taking advantage of bullying people into doing what they want. I mean, if these were, uh, you know, people that were in kind of a, a bad situation and he's taking advantage of it, it, it just seems like a really bad movie plot. And unfortunately, it's a reality. Well, and Erica, you're, you're exactly right when you say a, p a person in power. And 
you know, it's funny, I think back to my time in law school and we, we had to take an ethics class in law school. Every, everybody that graduates from law school has a, a semester or two of, of ethics. And every single ethics class has an entire section on not having sex with clients. And when you're in law school and you, you speak to your classmates, the ridiculousness of it, the, the ridiculousness of the idea of having sex with a client or, or a witness is, is, is absurd. I mean, everybody's like, why are we spending so much time on this? Because you would never do it. No reasonable person would do this because of that power dynamic. It's so obvious. It's so easy to manipulate. Um, and, and I can tell you, Erica, from, from personal experience that I, I've had clients solicit me. I've had clients you know, approach me in a, in, in a romantic way. And I said, you, you don't feel this way about me. You feel this way about the, the power position that I'm in. And that's not appropriate. And, and thank you, but no. Um, it seems like time and time again, the people that are caught breaking this barrier, violating these ethical norms are the people that are supposed to be protecting us from that kind of misconduct. It's the prosecutors, it's the police officers that we see time and time again, uh, violating the, the trust uh, of the community. Uh, and, and I think this is also an example of uh, the broken criminal injustice system, a miscarriage of justice brought about by yet another flawed prosecution that treated a powerful man with kid gloves, despite the evidence suggesting that he's been abusing his elected position for decades. It's an example of the failure of prosecutors to hold their own kind accountable. So most frequently, obviously, Erica, we see police not holding other police accountable. You know, Amy Detweiler being the most recent example we've talked about on this show. She had the opportunity to remedy or at least mitigate Adam Coy's misconduct, and she chose not to. And this is an example of the failure of prosecutors to hold their own to the standard that they hold everybody else to. And I think every single attorney in that DA's office that was aware of this going on should be investigated for their failure to report under the whistleblower rules that govern all attorneys in every state. And I think it's also an example of effective defense lawyering on, the behalf, on behalf of Mr. Morrill. His attorneys demonstrated the commitment of the defense bar to providing representation to even the most vilified and reprehensible people involved in the criminal injustice system. And of course, Eric, I'm talking about prosecutors. It's an example of how even a broken system with the assistance of a qualified defense attorney can result in a positive result for the client. Um, and it supports our calls for police and, and prosecution reforms. Well, I mean, I can see why you think it's a sham. $20,000 $20, to him is probably like a couple hundred dollars to most people um, who are, are in that high of power and been making a lot of money for a long time. So it, definitely justice has not been served. And 
I mean, some of your arguments I know in the past have been, hey, if what what if he was a different different nationality? What if he was a different color? Then what it would what would it look like then? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that's um, a common common issue. I mean, you know, what if what if Adam Coy was a different color? You know, would he be treated differently? And I think we see time and time again that that is the case. And no more so than in the last thing that we're going to talk about today in segment one, Erica, which is, did you see the bombing of Nashville um, on Christmas Day by A.Q. Warner? Uh, yes, I did. I actually have a cousin who lives there, and I was actually born about... Uh, 40 minutes from there. So I, I have a lot of family down there still. And thankfully, uh, everyone is okay. Um, yeah, that's it's just startling that, that this is happening. And this, this just seems more like a, a, not a terrorist act, but just a lone crazy man. And I, I heard that the police officers actually had a warning about this person making bombs like even a year before it happened. Is that true? It, it is. And first and foremost, Erica, I'm so glad to hear that your family is safe. And it, it seems like uh, the only person that perished in this bombing was Mr. Warner himself. Um, but it's true that law enforcement, Nashville Police Department was aware that Mr. Warner was building bombs at his home. Um, and this is an allegation that was, it seems like it was not taken seriously by Nashville police. Uh, and, and it should be in light of our Homeland Security protocols that have been in place for more than 20 years now. Um, it's curious here because Nashville police arrived at his home on the tip of his girlfriend who had access to the residence and they stopped investigating him after he didn't show up at the door. Now, in hindsight, this sounds outrageous, but I, I guarantee there are likely other factors at work that led to Nashville abandoning this, uh, this situation. You know, not the least of which is, you know, the, the, the single tip of, of an unidentified informant about him, you know, building a device, uh, I, I think becomes really difficult for them to get a warrant to search at, at that point. However, you know, could they have thwarted this? Maybe, maybe not. Could they have kept the pressure up on him? Absolutely. I mean, the tip was from someone he knew who lived in the, in the residence. It's, it seems like a pretty good tip. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it still might not be enough to, to secure probable cause to get a warrant to search. And even if they do find you know, the, the various elements to make a bomb, um, a lot of you know, all of those items are legally allowed to uh, legally obtainable. So, you know, can they charge him with a crime? Can they seize those items? Um, I, I think we're on really shaky Fourth Amendment ground if we expect Nashville police to to do that. Now, I think what's more problematic in this case is that they walked away from this this person they knew was doing something and they also knew that he was a white man now had they known or believed that he was of arab descent or a muslim i think this case would have been treated very very differently um you know 
I think this is important, not just because of what he was ultimately able to do. And, you know, thankfully, currently, he's the only casualty of his actions. But it's a prime example of why implicit bias training and psychological assessment needs to happen for all law enforcement officers at every single level. Now, consider in your mind, uh, the situation is, is flipped, where he is an Arab or he is a Muslim. Uh, and imagine their absolute disregard for constitutional protections for somebody that looks different from them. And honestly, if, if that doesn't make your stomach turn over, uh, you have a lack of love for this country. Well, I, I agree with you. So, I mean, I'm glad nobody was hurt and hopefully they can change some of the policies so that they can do more next time they get this kind of a tip and save lives. Now, let's turn our attention to our featured topic this week, segment two. Now, remember, last time we talked, we were talking about the difference between sealing a record and expunging a record, who has access to those sealed records, and the impact of sealing records. Now, let's talk about who is an eligible offender under revised code 295331, who is eligible to have their criminal record sealed? So it's interesting in how you phrase that. Is there only, is there more than one type of eligible offender? There is not. There are actually two criteria or sets of criteria under which uh, people can have their records sealed in Ohio. Now, under the first category, under the A section, a person can have their record sealed if they have no more than five felony convictions of the fourth or fifth degree, and they have misdemeanor convictions, and none of those convictions are felonies of the first, second, or third degree, and none of those convictions are for felony sex offenses or uh, felony crimes of violence. So a lot of uh, additions there. Under the second, under the B section, a person can have their record sealed if they have no more than two misdemeanor convictions or one misdemeanor and one felony conviction. Now under either criteria, under either section, uh, a conviction does include every conviction. So whether it's from this state, another state, the federal system, all of those convictions count towards your total number. And remember that some convictions like sex offenses, OVIs, crimes of violence are never eligible to be sealed. I see. So as long as it's not a horrific offense, you may be eligible to have those records sealed. And probably the best thing to do is to ask someone like you a fantastic attorney who knows the rules and knows the workarounds if you know if they for some reason aren't eligible under criteria or a or b i mean is there something that you would recommend absolutely so i, I think you're you're right erica on a variety of fronts first uh, it's really important to talk to counsel about this and there's there are a variety of options for you to speak with counsel. Many legal clinics around the state 
are available to help you with this. And even if you don't live in a major metropolitan area, you can drive to a legal clinic in one of those major metropolitan areas and get some free advice and some guidance on how to do that. Um, you can also consult with an experienced defense attorney that can help you with this. Now, a lot of defense attorneys a lot of attorneys, I should say, are not up to speed on these new modifications to the seal record statutes. These are relatively new uh, eligibility categories, um, but experienced and qualified defense attorneys are going to know about these options. And the best of attorneys are going to understand that even if you don't qualify under the A or the B section, there are options available to you to help get your record sealed, cleaned up, um, and so that you can move on without the repercussions of those convictions. Now, it can get more difficult. It can be more difficult, but there are options available and not just for your criminal records, but also for uh, civil and administrative findings like uh, civil protection orders that have expired and administrative findings relative to children's services investigations. You know, those things have long-term impacts both on your ability to obtain a job, your ability to adopt children, your ability to foster children, your ability to uh, get custody of your children should your relationship with your child's parents uh, fall apart. So you don't want to wait until crisis arise to address these matters. Take care of it now. You know, let's take 2020 and everything that came before it and get it cleaned up. Oh, I mean, I agree with you. And there are so many instances that we've talked about before where, you know, people just let things sit on their record that could be sealed or expunged. And, you know, the problem is that it's too late. Something happens and all of a sudden that's on your record and then something else gets put on your record unexpectedly and it gets compounded and it's almost impossible to fix it at that point. And when are they able to file to get, um, you know, something sealed? How soon after the offense is put on their record? Eligible offenders do have to wait a certain statutorily set amount of time before they can have their record sealed. Now, the, the triggering event for this is completion of the sentence. And that means paying off all the fines, um, paying off uh, any restitution that's owed, um, serving out any jail sentence and successfully or serving out any period of probation or parole. You know, so for example, the timelines for a felony conviction, you know, first depend on the number of convictions, but then after the completion of sentence, the offender has to wait three, four, or five years, depending on, on the number of uh, prior convictions and, and following the completion of the sentence. For all misdemeanors, we're talking one year after the completion of the sentence. Um, any arrests or charges that were never uh, indicted, uh, to, to have a, a practically guaranteed sealing of those records, you have to wait two years from the time the grand jury failed to indict the case or a no bill was returned. 
Um, but oftentimes those charges can be sealed as soon as the we know that the prosecution isn't moving forward. And at that point, it's kind of a, a balancing test of, you know, is the prosecution going to oppose it? Will the judge allow that sealing to happen? And of course, not guilty, dismissed, and nollied charges uh, can be uh, sealed immediately as soon as that finding is journalized. Wow. Well, I mean, this is really good information to know, uh, especially for people that are looking to get a fresh start after, um, you know, after a conviction. And so I'm glad that they have you to, uh, you know, really keep track of these things, help them get things, help them get their records sealed if it's at all possible, because we've talked about this in the past. I mean, you have something on your record and not only can it be compounded, like, like I said earlier, but, um, you know, really causes problems with relationships, with trying to find a job, you know, just with living your life in general, in so many ways, you can have a lot of setbacks by having these things remain on your, on your record or visible for anyone to see. Absolutely, Erica. This is this is something to get out ahead of today, so that it doesn't come and bite you in the tuchus tomorrow. So this is a question that I I often ask when we're talking about anything that has to do with filing a legal action. Uh, can you do it on your own? Do you need an attorney? I mean, I know that I would. I always tell people definitely use an attorney, but something's are simple and they can be done be done on their own. What do you think about this particular situation? Can it be filed on their own or do they need an attorney? People can and frequently do file their own requests to have their records sealed. And especially so in simple cases. But as you've seen in our discussion over these last two episodes, this can be a very complex area of law. And the motion itself, the request to the court to have these records sealed, requires factual support with records, character letters, and often legal analysis to make sure and, and demonstrate to the court that the applicant is eligible and the appropriate waiting period has passed. You know, just because an application is filed doesn't mean it'll be granted. The prosecutor's office can and often will oppose that request. And at that point, you've got an evidentiary hearing set, you know, a, a time when you have to go into court and you have to call witnesses and you have to present evidence. And a, a pro se person, a person going in the court representing themselves is always in a David versus Goliath position when it comes to going up against a prosecutor and convincing a judge of the, the, the righteousness of their situation, of their case. And it's not just about sealing the record of conviction that can be opposed. Um, it, the prosecutors can oppose sealing the record of dismissals or no bills or not guilty verdicts. So if it's important, you should really at least consider talking to an attorney. Um, and in order to make sure that you're successful, um, you know, really bringing in the assistance of an experienced attorney uh, for the evidentiary hearing is, is most important. I absolutely agree. And, you know, I do encourage anyone that has any questions on a criminal matter or know someone that could use some help. I definitely call the offices of attorney Brian Jones because they 
know what they're doing. They're up in all of the latest laws and they will get the very best outcome for you and, you know, give you your options with, in, with your future life in mind. And I think that that's very important and not every attorney does that. So please give them a call if you are in the Ohio area. Erica, if they come to me and it's a really simple situation, I'm going to send them out the door to my, of my offices with the forms that they need and they can go off and do it themselves. You know, I don't have any interest in, uh, you know, picking up cases that are that are that easy, you know, unless they really, really want my, my assistance. I, I do want to say this, if this is a really simple case, and you come to see me and I and I know that I'm going to tell you and, and I'm going to send you out the door with the forms that you need to get this done for yourself. And if you really, really want my assistance, I'm, I'm happy to do so. And I'm happy to give you a fair rate to get it done. But if it's complex, I'm going to tell you that it's complex and I'm going to show you how I can help you with that. Now, I'm also going to teach you how you can do it on your own um, and let you make that decision. If you feel that you're going to have a better chance with me, then fantastic. I'm happy to help. And if you feel like you can do it on your own, I'm going to wish you the best of luck. I'm going to give you every tool that I can to help you achieve that goal. So, Erica, I really appreciate the talk today. It was a great discussion. And everybody out there that's listening to us, I really appreciate you tuning in and, and hearing what we have to say. Uh, really encourage you to share this message, this podcast with everybody that you know to get word out and get people informed about their rights um, in order to make sure that everybody out there knows how to clean up their mistakes, how to make sure that the police and government are held accountable, and everything that you all need to know about your constitutional and civil rights, be sure to check out this podcast on facebook.com slash Central Ohio Criminal Defense. Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at TLOBJ, and our office website, thelawofficeofbrianjones.com. Next week, we'll be back with a sui generis perspective on the next big thing in civil rights and criminal injustice system news, as well as a deep dive into your Eighth Amendment right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment. Now, Erica, my grandfather always told me when we parted ways, he always said, don't do anything I wouldn't do, young man. And to that, with all of my friends, I add, but if you do and you get caught, call me. I'll defend your rights as I'd want mine defended.